Distinguished guests and dear friends, good morning and welcome to the National Library of Australia. I'm Anne-Marie Schwertlich and it is my great joy to be the Director General of the National Library. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for the land that we are now privileged to call home. It is an honour for the Library to welcome you for this lecture, named in honour of Australian journalist Colin Simpson and presented by Frank Morehouse. Both Colin and Frank are part of the National Library family. We hold Colin's personal papers, portraits, oral history recordings and, of course, his books. And you can read some of his journalism on Trove. We're delighted that Frank is back at the library where he has been a researcher, writer and guest speaker. He too lives at the library as he is represented across our collections. We take great pride in the library's contribution to the Edith Trilogy. This contribution dates back to 1997 when Frank received a Harold White Fellowship to research the papers relating to the League of Nations. This is the first time the Library is hosting the Colin Simpson Memorial Lecture and we were delighted to be asked to do so by our friends, the Australian Society of Authors. The Library has had a long relationship with the ASA and its members are at the heart of our collections and we very much appreciate the Society's advocacy on behalf of Australian writers and Australian literature. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce Angelo Lukakis, Executive Director of the Australian Society of Authors. As well as leading the ASA, Angelo has an impressive background as a teacher, a scriptwriter, an editor and a publisher. And so I'd ask you to please welcome Angela Lukakis. Well, thank you, Anne-Marie, uh, uh, for that uh, warm and uh, uh, much-appreciated welcome. Uh, the structure of today's event is very simple. Um, I introduce Frank. Frank speaks. <laughs> and then there's a, a short time, not uh, a very long time, a short time for some questions at the end. So uh, just to further my thanks uh, on behalf of the ASA to the National Library, Anne-Marie, we're, we're very happy to be here. This is a, a natural venue, as you, uh, I think, were suggesting for authors and our activities. And so, uh, uh, you know, the, the gesture is appreciated. I hope we do uh, more of these events in future. So it's my, my very great pleasure to uh, also introduce uh, to you today Frank Morehouse, thinker, writer, doer, and that's D-O-E-R, because Frank is never doer. He's also doer. <laughs> <laughs> bon vivant and boulevardier, and of course hero of the ASA. As an author, Frank's achievements are prodigious. The Edith novels and his Miles Franklin win perhaps more in the public eye these days, but many of us also know him as one of the best short story writers ever to appear in this country. 
The American's Baby, The Electrical Experience, these and other collections of his were great groundbreaking books, books which certainly influenced my own writing and the writing of numerous other Australian authors over the years. I won't try to describe the, uh, the breadth and qualities of Frank's writing. These have been duly noted elsewhere and indeed publicly celebrated on many occasions, including in 2013 when he was honoured with the Australia Council Award for Lifetime Achievement in Literature. Frank has been many things in his life and is many things today. A distinguished author with numerous successful works to his name, but also very much a contemporary author whose writing also addresses critical aspects of the here and now, no matter in which period his books are set. The title of today's Colin Simpson lecture, the subject he will address uh, here, is indicative of his continuing engagement with questions of the day. But I want to say something about Frank Morehouse as a historical figure too. Not in any chronological or ageist terms. Instead to say of him that this is also a person who has worked over a long period, beginning way back on behalf of the rights and welfare of Australian authors, as well as in the interests of Australian readers, and who has made a difference in ways that resonate for us right now. When I said Frank is a hero of the Australian Society of Authors, I really mean it. Not only a champion for authors who are members of our organisation, but for those who may not be officially subscribed. For instance, it's not that well known outside writer circles that Frank was a central player in the achievement of one of the most important regulatory changes to ever affect authors in this country, the implementation of a reprographic rights regime that made a huge difference, still does, to the working lives of authors, the institution of payment for the copying of our work. The copyright agency we have today, which is so vital in keeping authors alive and writing, is the result of an enormous amount of hard work by Frank and his comrades in earlier days. That was lawmaking stuff on which we are still very reliant. It is not for nothing that Frank is today a celebrated member of the Council of the ASA. Then, as well, he has contributed enormously, contributed enormously to the fight for the freedom to write. As a member of Penn, he has always been there to support writers around the world who have been imprisoned for daring to write and speak as they wish to write and speak. At home, there are new threats to freedom of expression, indeed to the very idea of liberty itself. Some of the battles to be able to write without being thwarted or punished by reactionaries of one stripe or another, battles that he and others were engaged in once upon a time, we see now, depressingly, must be fought again. We know that Frank will be in the front lines again with us as we deal with an increasingly oppressive Australian state. His fellow authors look to his leadership once more. Today we will see Frank seated to give his talk uh, for reasons I, I will leave to him to describe. But ladies and gentlemen, this is no defeated warrior, no Spartan warrior brought home on his shield. This is where all certain merely a temporary setback for one of our very best, someone I've known for a great many years now, call a friend and who I commend to you all. Please, everyone, welcome Frank Morehouse to give the 2015 Colin Simpson Memorial Lecture. Thank you. Thank you, Angelo. Uh, and uh, thank, thank you to the library to host us today, and thank, thank you to the, uh, you to come, uh, for coming out. 
today. I was in the green room and I was thinking that back in the late 1900s and into the early 20th, 20th century, there, there were the, uh, the, the socialist movement and the humanist movement decided to replace sun, church Sunday schools with socialist Sunday schools. <laughs> And uh, and uh, and instead of going to church, we went to a lecture. <laughs> well, you'll certainly get preached <laughs> today. Uh, I'll do that bit, and you may be praying for the end. <laughs> uh, I, I just will say a few short words about Colin Simpson. Uh, I. Colin was a very successful travel writer um, and I met Colin when I became president of the Society of Authors in 1981. I position uh, I held for three years. I took over from Manning Clark and uh, was followed by Donald Horn. If you think I'm a preacher, <laughs> if they were sitting here today, you'd have a great speech, a great preach. Uh, they were very dramatic years for the ASA. The victories were led by two men, by Colin Simpson and Gus O'Donnell, and of course the work of many committee members and ASA members behind the scenes, lobbying and planning. Gus O'Donnell, as was mentioned by, by Angelo, was, uh, had the copyright portfolio, and about which authors didn't have a clue. No, authors have very little clues about the, the way their industry works, if it's an industry... Uh, but it was Gus O'Donnell who drummed into us, lectured us, philosophised to us, tutored us in the laws of copyright, bringing home to us that that was all we had to negotiate within our lives, that is, the right of someone to copy our work for profit. Uh, and it is what it literally means. It's the right to copy, copyright. And he, as he pointed out, these, this is the very economic and philosophical core of our life and uh, it's the copyright law that protects our talents and we have to control it and protect our copyright and the law or we have nothing. And of course that flows through to, read, to readers. The, uh, <clears throat> but Colin Simpson was uh, the other half of, 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 of the fighting team. His portfolio was public lending rights portfolio. Uh, I met, when I met Colin, he was a, a, a dapper man, a uh, very, very active man, a very bright man. Uh, and he was trying to convince the Society of Authors and, uh, and the rest of the country that we needed something called public lending rights. Uh, it was, again, another mystery to most writers. They saw that, along with copyright reform, as being a pipe dream, the idea that we would pay, be paid for our, the presence of our work in libraries uh, and later in the educational library system. Uh, they thought, most writers thought that was a, a pipe dream and there was fat chance of it ever coming off. Uh, Colin advocated at first in 1956 and then meeting after meeting, conversation after conversation, argument after argument, letter after letter, buttonholing after buttonholing, lobbying after lobbying, uh, trying to convince the pessimistic writing community that it was feasible. 
The idea, by the way, started in Denmark and was implemented there in 46. But in the world, it had, it had, not, had not spread quickly. But Colin understood it, had understood it and caught on. And he, he was... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, and 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 consequently uh, brought the whole idea of a just return to writers for the giving of free use of their books through the public library system. So Colin was not far behind Denmark in the, in the world in leading pub, uh, the uh, evolution of public lending rights. Uh, so bo both Gus and Colin had to overcome apathy of, of, of the writing community uh, who never re never believed they'd ever be properly paid for their work. Uh, and then there was, of course, the romantic part of the writing community which believes that who wants... To, who, who, we, we're, too, we're too deeply involved in our work to worry about money, although I, I find fewer and fewer of those around. <laughs> Um, so public lending right was made, uh, first payment was made to authors in March uh, 1975. He'd been arguing and, and, and fighting for 25 years. He talked public lending right for 25 years. There was opposition from librarians who, who thought the money would be taken from their budgets, from, uh, from those people who saw it as a threat to the free library system because they thought that the readers might be asked to pay for the books. Uh, and again, there was um, a, a feeling that uh, that the, the fat that is the fatalistic apathy of writers. So the great lessons taught, and the great lessons taught to us by writers like Gus O'Donnell and Colin Simpson, who were not, uh, although Colin was successful, Gus was, was had written some good novels, uh, but they were he was not well known. Uh, he, he said he wrote the best novel about New Guinea during the war and there, there was only one book <laughs> written about New Guinea uh, during the war from, from, um, uh, at that time. Uh, <clears throat> it, the, lesson, the, the real great lessons he taught, I think, uh, the Society of Authors and, and perhaps other, other small organisations that have good ideas but no economic bargaining power. Of course, the writers couldn't go on strike. We did threaten to pull our books out of, out of libraries, but that was an impossible idea. Some booksellers, one idea was that we should, withdraw, we should go and borrow our books from our local library and get our friends to borrow our books and other writers borrow their books and not return them. <laughs> we all ended up with heavy fines. <laughs> but by, by some civic persistence, by advancing the thinking behind good ideas and through educating a membership and then educating what we would call the stakeholders and the, politi the politicians and the public servants. It was long, hard work. And, and, we, and Colin and Gus achieved their aim. Uh, many members of the ASA contributed to the fight, of course, as I said, and, and the extension of public lending right to the libraries that are in schools and universities was also another fight. That was, and that's called education lending right, educational lending right, and and people like Robert Pullen and Nadia Wheatley and Libby Gleeson were led those fights, uh, on the back of 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 course, the great victory of Colin Simpson.
so it demonstrated and taught us that writers should not forget, and this might apply to other organisations, that, that we have special talents of storytelling, the poet, the biographer, and the special status in the society that writers give respect, are given respect, and viewed in some cases by all, I, f I find still, regardless of the glamorous new technologies, uh, and that we can use this status uh, and our talents to win our rights in the, in the economic hard world of economics. We can win. So it is my honour to be giving the Colin Simpson Memorial Lecture this year and it's an honour to have known him and those members of the ASA who won those great battles. The title of the, of the talk I'd like to give today... Excuse me, by the way, for not standing, but uh, I've got a bad knee problem. Um, uh, was, uh, does the imagination have an ethics? In 1934, in 1934, a musical written by Cole Porter debuted on on um, Broadway. It was uh, "Does Does Anything Go?" was the title of the show, and of course, a title song in the show. And it's it's been revived many times and and produced many times. I'm tempted to sing the song. Does anything go? And I practiced, and I thought, no, that's. <laughs> it's hard enough to get people to come to hear me talk, let alone get people to come and, and hear me sing. <laughs> and it's never happened. I doubt whether it will. But some of you might like to sing along. <laughs> that's that's a good idea. Right. Here's the song. Does anything go? Times have changed, I'm going to recite it. Times have changed since the Puritans got a shock when they landed on Plymouth Rock. If today any shock they should try to stem, instead of landing on Plymouth Rock, Plymouth, Plymouth Rock would land on them. In olden days, the glimpse of a stocking was looked at as something shocking. But now, God knows, anything goes. Good authors, too, who once knew better words, now only use four-letter words. <laughs> Writing prose, anything goes. If driving fast cars you like, if low bars you like, if old hymns you like, if bare limbs you like, if May, Les May West you like, or me undressed you like, why, nobody will oppose, anything goes. That was 1934. That was Cole Porter. I could have undressed. <laughs> what, about, what about the lines, good authors too, who once knew better words, now only use four-letter words? That was a, and that was 1934. Because something else happened, and the song was certainly influenced by what happened in literature that year. By the way, fast, driving fast cars, is no, that doesn't go anymore. <laughs> I don't like driving from he, here to, to Sydney. No, fast cars, are, I don't think that goes, Cole. 
Does anything now, every, anything go now in the arts, or more particularly for us in the literary art of the novel, uh, which is probably where I keep drifting back to while talking more generally about, as I said, curiously. Oh, there's a nice little curious footnote here. The musical Any, Anything Goes was set on board an ocean liner, and the original plot involved a bomb threat, a shipwreck, hijinks on a desert island. But just a few weeks before the show was due to open, a fire on board the passenger ship Moreau Castle caused the death of 138 passengers and crew members. The producer, Vinton Friedley, judged that to proceed with a show on a similar subject, uh, which was uh, comic, humorous, would be in dubious taste, and the opening was delayed. An ethical decision. But the really important thing that, that, that it, the song, if you like, I like to think the song celebrates, the thing that it, sh- it, should, it does celebrate in my mind is that in 1934, uh, that in 1934, the English-speaking world at last, at least st- the US, could at last read James Joyce's Ulysses. The American courts in 34 affirmed that the book was not obscene, was in fact also literature. Although looking at the judgment, it said it, it also seems to say that, that in the right hands obscenity can become art. And it's now, of course, acknowledged as one of the greatest novels written. And the fight to get that book published had been going on since 1918. So, it, but then the fight was over except in Australia, because we didn't get to read it until 1953. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? It was banned until 53. If you haven't read the book, I recommend it. (laughs) And uh, uh, someone said that there are those people who've read the book, there are those people who pretend to have read the book, uh, there, uh, there are some people who've read read the the sexual parts of the book, <laughs> which very strong last page, uh, and uh, and then there are some journalists who think people who say they've read the book are poseurs. <laughs> but it took me three attempts to read Ulysses. I tried to read it in my twenties because I thought it was desperately desperately uh, important for a young writer to read Ulysses and I, I tried to read it and couldn't but I said I read, had read it and then I tried a little later in my late 20s and, and still found it the thing that got in the way of, of reading it was not only is it, is it a great play with words and a great play with styles uh, it's, and a great play with the imagination but it has such awe now <laughs> that we 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 pick up the book and think, oh, can I handle this? Uh, uh, and the awe got in the way. And then somewhere in my 30s, it, I, I started to read it and it worked wonderfully well and, and, to, and, it, and it was a great read. And it is a great read once you get used to the rhythms of it. But in the... So in the lecture this year, I wanted to explore whether everything goes... Uh, what are the current taboos, new sensitivities and questions of vilification and hate speech and offence and attempts to limit the imagination in one way or another. 
while working on... Uh, I had virtually finished writing uh, following that line when, uh, when the uh, Charlie Hebdo magazine in France uh, uh, was uh, having a meeting and some Islamic terrorists broke into the office and, sl- and, and shot dead the staff of the magazine... We'd had before that. We'd had some cartoons in Denmark, which had been, uh, which had featured Muhammad, but had and had been uh, caused serious unrest among the Islamic community. And remember, there was also a fatwa issued against Salman Rushdie, uh, which required him to have police protection for years and to remain pretty much in hiding, changing addresses pretty much. And still, and and this the threats still out there. But what what happened this month uh, and changed caused the caused the complete rewriting of the of this talk, uh, which and probably robbed it of some of its fluency. Was that um, that that Char, Char, Charlie Heb, Heb, Hebdo? I, uh, 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 and the, and the violent the, the violent the violent slaughtering of of its staff um, has created a, a significant change in the threats and and uh, and resistance to uh, the freedom of the imagination and I I, I wanted to look. In some details, at, at, at what is happening, what what this might mean to us, and what other people think it might mean to us, about as readers and as writers, it has incredible, incredible implications. In the past, where there have been theatres burned down, there's been there have been audiences at operas who've booed down the down the opera because it offended them or they thought it wasn't up to standard or was too too radical. But nothing quite like the slaughtering of the staff of this magazine has happened. The use of uh, the imagination in the arts, particularly in literary forms such as fiction and drama, has developed during the 19th centuries and 20th century has developed a, a tradition of anything goes and uh, and for constant experiment the con there remember there was once the concept of the avant-garde which implies a pressure on the artist to break brown boundaries to break the rules and that that has been strong strongly embedded in western arts traditions for the last few hundred two hundred years at least But we're but now we're faced with we're faced with a, a very the, the question about whether whether some things cannot now be imagined and if they can be imagined cannot be expressed in literature, for fear that our work will encourage or endorse evil or provoke social unrest, social cohesion and violence in the streets. Is the is the great tradition that we've, we, we have been living out for the last few hundred years of the untrammeled artistic imagination as, as being perhaps the most important way we have of exploring 
and expressing the human condition and human sensibility in all its manifestations and by so doing moving us along the path to a more civilised world. That is, the more we understand about the darkness of the human species, uh, the more we're guided by the arts, the safer we will be. The more we know, the more we understand, the safer we will be. And to not have an imagine uh, the right, not have the literary imagination free to go in its bold and, and dark directions uh, will be to limit our understanding of ourselves as a species, and that is the uh, underlying tenet, I think, of uh, of the free the freedom of the imagination. And, of course, many of us would answer yes, but I think the events caused by Hebdo have brought to us questions that we've never had to face. Just wanted to make quick sep separation out of a few words here. Um, ethics, law, morality, sin, sin. I've never talked about sin enough. I've been practising it. <laughs> but, and we have uh, words that are in that, uh, buried in, in either law, ethics or morali morality. Uh, and those words are vilification and what is known as hate speech. The law has always limited uh, imagination, though less and less. Uh, you can still be sued for defamation. We like to kid ourselves that by changing the name of, the per of, of one of our friends called Donald Day to, to Jack Knight won't, won't get us out of the courts. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it is possible, no matter how much disguise that you lay on, on, a, um, on, a, on a, a real person and put them in a novel... If there are people who can recognise him or her, uh, you are still liable. So there are restraints. Uh, we we can't plagiarise for for good reasons. Although you can do that, some poets argue you can do that now as as a way of uh, of creating a new work. There's a, there was a short story published last Christmas in the Australian, which drew on about 20, 20 short story writers and it drew parts from our books, including three parts from what, some of my books I was pleased to see. <laughs> I thought I'd been forgotten. Uh, but this young writer, um, what's his name? It'll, it'll come to me. Um, uh, created a story out of, of parts. And uh, painters have been doing this too, of, of copying other painters, uh, out putting their pa other people's paintings into their paintings, appropriation. So that there's always been um, fights, and of course, obscenity and sexual sexuality was was excluded by law for quite a while, and and only pretty much began to re the law began to change and retreat uh, back in 1934 with Ulysses. Morality and ethics are a different part of the same pressures that come up against the imagination. 
so uh, the way I I I try often to separate morality from from ethics, uh, but of course in common usage they they run together. Um, that the, the, the moralists say that there are certain certain rules within our uh, should be imposed on on the imagination on the arts uh, to bring about um, uh, a, a less indecent society or to create a, a more a more uh, a society which is uh, less confronting and. Often, of course, um, morality, uh, moralists draw uh, on a on a supernatural authority or divine doctrines for their authority. Uh, even if the law uh, is does not wish to be involved, there is still pressure groups that attempt to uh, to limit what the where the imagination should go and what it can and what it can do. The separation of mo- morality and and law was stated most strongly in 1957 when Luf, uh, Lord Wolfenden, uh, uh, whose committee recommended to the British government that homosexu- homosexuality should no longer be a criminal offence. And Wolfenden's report states, unless a deliberate attempt is made by our society to equate the sphere of crime with that of sin... There must remain a realm of private morality and immorality which is not the law's business. So we have morality and the law parting ways. In some societies, of course, uh, uh, they are the same thing. There are still, and of course, many religions still uh, fight to have sins made illegal and to stop the arts from endorsing uh, and sin or, or or, and, of course, to stop the imagination being used uh, to, in forms of blasphemy. And there are m- many countries of the world still have blasphemy laws. Denmark is, is reconsidering bringing in blasphemy laws and, uh, uh, without, much, without much support from the population. Uh, but the, uh, they make, they, I, I see that they make a distinction about um, racial uh, vilifying an individual because of their religion and as a, a, a and quite as separate from in fact uh, attacking all religion uh, and there's a, there's an, a, 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 an old argument has flared up up there uh, up again and the idea of blasphemy being uh, a dangerous uh, uh, dangerous to social cohesion or social um, Order is now being discussed, sadly. And then I, I use the word ethics to describe those proposed rules and, and arrangements outside law and outside religious morality, which a community arrives at and, and codifies as being a significant part of the community, believing that these rules and arrangements are best for safe, peaceful, tolerant, inclusive ways of living together, and the practices of which assume among, uh, and the, and the, and uh, for practices which are assumed to be among part of any civilized community. Ethics, as with morality, are not part of the legal system, although it may the legal system may at, at times reinforce them and set them, set benchmarks or set standards which the community should strive to live by.
so we we up till up pretty much uh, up till this month. Um, what we would a lot of us would most of us and I make assumptions about you here today because you're here and not at mass and you're <laughs> and you're here to talk about writing that that we still see the the vocation of writing as as being very central uh, a very a, a central value value and the freedom of expression to be a central value to uh, the decent and civilized society and and as as ways of, uh, of as as the only ways we can find uh, our way to uh, to a uh, a deep and uh, perception and deep understanding of what we are as a, as a as a species another one of the things connected to the to our co- the code of of, lit- of arts ethics or literary ethics was arts for the expression arts for art's sake and um, this expressed a philosophy which is uh, current and 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 uh, and part of our i think part of our our ethos our arts ethos in western countries expresses the philosophy that the intrinsic value of art and the only true art is divorced from any didactic moral or utilitarian function such works as are described as autolectic complete in themselves and self-justifying a concept that has been expanded to embrace uh, the idea that that, that the true arts are inner-directed and should and should remain inner-directed. That is, that they come from the artist, and uh, and the artist should be free to go where the artist wishes. Uh, after all, the the understanding was that that the words that that words are not deeds. That uh, to describe uh, to describe a so in great in great great detail, for instance, a concentration Nazi concentration camp is not to establish an, a Nazi concentration camp. It's and uh, it's the Enlightenment commitment that that in, involved here is that the free wanderings of the imagination, especially into the dark and taboo zones of human sensibility, is is. Um, the prime, prime, primary imperative of art, and uh, it will somehow, somehow, it's a, it's, it's partly a faith. It's not a scientifically established fact, but uh, it's a faith that somehow the human spirit is enhanced by by looking into the chasm of evil, and 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 to imagine it, uh, and to confront it through imagination, and to live it out through. The imagination. So it was. It's the posture of West, this Western literary tradition is that um, and that the serious artist alone determines the subject and of of their art and pursues it in his or her way to the nat- natural conclusion uh, in a creative enterprise who transforms uh, their, their world experience and perceptions into art, into an artwork. Two, two book, uh, well, two of the books of the 20th century 
one I think is the 21st century is one is the con- uh, that that are examples of of perhaps of, of the free ranging of the uh, of the imagination which we've permitted and and gained from. One is uh, uh, Celine's journey to the end of the night. He was a Nazi, and uh, and uh, his book is is essentially an exploration of the of the of the Nazi subculture, um, and so is Jonathan Littell's book, The Kindly Ones, that I, that was published in the twenty first century, which I, I I consider a very important book. Uh, it's written from the point of view of an SS, SS officer. Uh, I, and I use those as two examples of the sort of uh, places that we are happy to or permit permit the imagination to go, even if we don't like what it is. Will, there's a there is an English uh, jurist, uh, William Blackstone, 1723-1780, who wrote a treatise on the common law, which says, which remains an important source, by the way, of our common principles of common law. And Blackstone said, "Oh, before I, I before I quote this, I had two pet hens." And one was called Blackstone, and one was called Whitestone. <laughs> I must have I must have been reading Blackstone, or had been someone. One of my lawyer friends must have suggested I read what Blackstone had to say, and and I, I liked what Blackstone had to say so much. I named one of them, one of the hens Blackstone, and the other one Whitestone, and they were very impressive. And they I had a, a study in the garden, and and. They would come and visit me every day. They had a round that they'd do the gardens and do a lot of weeding and and worm hunting and whatever hens do all day and, and rolling in dust, dirt, have a dirt bath and and they had a routine and it was I was very gratified that part of their routine was to come in and and, sta- and not actually peck my feet but to come in and and see what I was up to and and be a presence in my life. That's called a discursion. <laughs> they were lovely hens, and they and they do have. I, there were obvious signs of intelligence. There's intelligent life in the hen. William Blackstone said, "Every free man has an undoubted right to lay what sentiments he pleases before the public." This is we're back in the in the 1700s. Every free man has an undoubted right to lay what sentiments he pleases before the public. To forbid this is to destroy the freedom of the press. But if he publishes what is improper, mischievous or illegal, he must take the consequences of his own temerity. So what, what this laid down, and, it, and it's been adopted in... in to a degree, and, and often totally in some of the in Western countries, is yes, uh, there should be absolute freedom to publish, but then you having published and and the book having reached the hands of the citizens, then uh, the author has to confront and accept the consequence of his own temerity. 
he was argue, arguing against pre-censoring, um, the setting up of a committee to read all books before they were published or newspapers being read by, a by public servants or by the police before they were published. Well, temerity, um, most of us, most writers uh, do, fa and, and all writers fa have published and face the consequences of their temerity. Uh, they publish, of course, in fear of harsh criticism, of ridicule, of si serious error, fear of failure to find a readership, fear of the, his friends, loss of friends uh, who identify themselves and who sometimes sue, although, as I said, that is very, very rare now. Um, thank God. Uh, and then there's the, the other part of temerity is that the, the, he or she, she the, the writer, uh, always has to answer the question, do I have sufficient talent to undertake the creation of this book, to play with people's lives, to create uh, these experiences, to imagine these things, uh, and to put them in print and to offer them to the public? And so, uh, I, and part part of, I would have, if I hadn't decided to change this talk, I would have looked at at, at the um, negotiations that are involved in uh, working with the, not only the novel, but of course with memoir and and biography, uh, and uh, but certainly even working with the novel with imaginative fiction, one of the great negotiations is with one friends and family and intimates and those around us and workmates who, who think they see themselves in the book. And then there is a negotiation for uh, the right to do this, to play with other people's lives. And, uh, and generally, it's, of course, it's granted and, and it causes divorces. <laughs> Although if when... when you know, when it's a wife, as, uh, the wife is a writer and the, and the husband is a writer, then they can write books about each other and make money and <laughs> and, ta and get their own back at the same time. <laughs> but um, one of the, but there were ethics involved in in uh, in writing about and and quite uh, most many novels draw on on living people. And there are uh, ethics there, but essentially it was anything goes, uh, it, I think, uh, and uh, you lived, lived with the temerity. And I think uh, anyone who, who's written and written with has said, oh, well, I, I'm going to put her in the book. <laughs> this, what happened is going to go in the book. I don't care what my mother says. Although Peter Carey, who comes up later in this talk, Peter Carey says that whenever he finishes his book, he thinks, "What will my mother say?" <laughs> so there are pre there are pressures, uh, there are ethics consideration, ethical considerations go on all the time, and as I said, the underlying philosophy of Western literature was anything goes. That's since 1934.
The, the, the contract, the contract there f that, that we're talking about here is that the contract of the writer is not with his friends and intimates and workmates and, and with living people around him. His, his primary contract is with the reader. And the reader con writer contract is that the writer promises to share with the reader what he or she, the writer, has experienced of the human condition, to tell stories as well as their talents, our talents will, will allow, uh, in the great traditions of the great missions of the enlightenment of, the, of science, scholarship and the arts, uh, investigating without inhib inhibition, uh, investigating the human conditions, without malice, that is, uh, I, I'm not... I, I think there are still ethics of uh, use of, of the arts for private uh, malice and for cruel uh, revenge and mischief. Um, Tennessee Williams says the only, the only ethic is that one should never use one's writing talents for intentional cruelty. That was his only, only ethic. So... Uh, which brings us to temerity of a much more serious and the consequences of a much more serious kind that has now fallen on us this month with Hebdo. The French magazine... Uh, I, I, I hadn't known about the magazine, and nor I, I actually put my hands on a copy. I've seen reproductions of pages and, and sections of it. Was anyone here has read um, the magazine? Or physically seen it? No. Oh, good, great. You should come out and talk about it. Uh, the French mag magazine uh, it only came to international attention when two French Algerian terrorists stormed the offices in Paris on January the 7th, 2015. This last January. The... the uh, the terrorists murdered 12 people and injured 11 other and shot dead most of the staff of the magazine who were planning an anti-racism issue. You pretty much know that in the tragedy's wake, Je suis Charlie became an international slogan for freedom of speech, support of freedom of speech, and the adage, the pen is mightier than the sword, and we've all seen the processions in many cities of the world where people held up a pen as they marched, as marched through uh, as they marched through in both in mourning and in in solidarity with the magazine Charlie Charlie Hebdo issue number 1178 was the first issue published after the murder murders and once again depicted the Prophet Muhammad. This time the, the Prophet Muhammad was shedding a tear and holding up a sign, Je suis Charlie, I am Charlie, as you remember the, the French slogan, Je suis Charlie, uh, went around the world and pe people had badges and t-shirts saying that we are all Charlie. Well, um, the the um, the magazine um, we have, an, as far as I can, I, I, I in most Western countries do not have magazines quite like uh, um, Hebdo. Um, 
it's irreverent or audacious, fatalistic, nihilistic. It's 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 uh, vilifies it. It desecrates. It's iconoclastic. It breaks down icons. Uh, it's an or, no, not an organ of any group or movement intending to bring about social change of any dangerous kind. It represents a fierce distaste for formal elements of religion, political office, and the hypocrisies of the respectable, and 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 so on. And it's a magazine opposed to hypocrisy and opposed to uh, religions and it, all its religions' dangers. I'll just quote to you here from a New Yorker. Uh, article about it. Uh, it is a, a symbol of a French t- satirical tradition. The magazine has been in c- a c- continual celebration of freedom to make fun of everyone and everything. It follows the great uh, tradition of Voltaire and other magazines that go back in the history of France. Uh, uh, it has it been described as, as an anarcho-libertarian but it practices, uh, according to the New Yorker, a freewheeling, dyspeptic satire without clear ideological lines. The right-wing leader, uh, Marine Le Pen, has sued Charlie Hebdo for depiction of her. The socialist president uh, of France at present, uh, Hollande, was revealed... uh, to be having an affair, and the magazine's cover showed him with his zipper open and his penis exposed. This is a taste of what the magazine is, was, is like. Um, Islamic fundamentalism has long been the magazine's many targets, and uh, in February 2006, Charlie Hebdo reprinted the cartoons depicting, depicting the pro, pro, uh, pro, prophet Muhammad as, uh, that it, um, that it also appeared earlier in a, in, a, in a Danish newspaper and had caused violent protests in the Muslim world. Um, the, one of the cartoonists, uh, Julian uh, Berjut, uh, once spoke of the difficulty of making fun of Islam in France. You can't beat up on a minority religion in quite the same way as on a majority religion, he said. If, if there is so much hysteria provoked by these cartoons, it's because there's a lot of anti-Arab and anti-Muslim racism in Europe, and this is uh, one of the uneasy links that the magazine uh, stumbles into, that is, that it, it, it pleases the racists uh, when it's, that's not its, of course, aim. Uh, a cover that one cover that summed up its 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 raison d'etre. The magazine showed a caveman holding a fiery torch in one hand and a cup of oil on the other, and the caption read, "The birth of humour, pouring oil onto the fire." Um, next, and the, the next issue, uh, and, across, and then it, uh, and the issue was labelled with the banner, "Irresponsible magazine." The second edition of that week's issue was labelled Responsible Magazine and came out with a blank cover. (laughs) The message was clear that the staff of of Charlie Hebdo believed that satire was an all-or-nothing proposition. I'm quoting here from The New Yorker, by the way. In keeping up with this spirit, Charlie did not let up on Islamic fundamentalism even after its office was bombed. This was before 
they were gunned down. And its Heb White website was hacked a number of times. The magazine has run special issues supposed, supposedly with guest, guest edited by Muhammad, which featured a, sh a cover that showed the prophet saying, a hundred lashes if you don't die laughing. <laughs> and uh, Charlie Hebdo responded to an, another attack uh, with a, a cover that showed a bearded man in traditional Muslim dress being kissed by a male magazine staffer with the words, love is stronger than hate. For my, my impression is that, 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 that Charlie Hebdo magazine was not always, not always as funny as, <laughs> as it could be. Uh, I didn't think that joke was so funny. But, uh, and there's been quite a bit of criticism of its crudity of style. Uh, I suppose one of, the one of the impressions I have is that it might be what we would call undergraduate, which is probably unfair to undergraduates. Uh, just as an interesting statistic here, Le Monde has pointed out that only seven of Charlie Hebdo's 523 covers, well, since it's been publi publishing, uh, ridicules Islam. Seven out of 500. So what's happened, uh, and we're coming to the end here. Um, you may know that, that um, <clears throat> the uh, pen, pen, um, American pen, uh, where am I? American pen, uh, on May the 5th, this year, uh, honoured the magazine Charlie Hebdo with the pen Tony and James C. Goodall Freedom of Expression Courage Award in a response to the uh, Jan January 7 attacks that claimed the lives of the staff members. So Penn, uh, on May the 5th, had uh, a dinner and a uh, and a, if you like a, uh, and made these awards and and celebrated the courage of, of the magazine. Some writers came out in opposition to the to the making of this award, and one was Peter Carey. Some of you might have read his book, and <laughs> don't let that get back to him. Peter, Peter Carey, Michael Ondaatje, Francine Porros, Tuju Cole, Rachel Kushner, and Tay Selassie, and they withdrew their support for the award and refused to come to the dinner. What did Peter? What did Peter Carey? Uh, they, they, each of them had a roughly the same sort of position, and what was Peter Carey's position then? Peter says that the uh, first of all that that it was outside the role of Penn to to make awards uh, to magazines such as of, of Charlie Hebdo, and that the role of Penn was protect to protect the freedom of expression from government opposition, not from terrorists. Um, Uh, his second position is that um, 
pen by making this American pen by making this award uh, is in fact uh, ignoring the guilt of American foreign policies. He says it confuses a hideous crime. He says Peter says a hideous crime was committed, but it was a, a freedom of speech. Was it a freedom of speech issue for Penn Ma- Mer- American to be self righteous about? Uh, he, he said that that all this is complicated by Penn's seeming blindness to the cultural arrogance of the French nation which does not recognise its moral obligations to the large and disempowered segment of their population of Muslims. Uh, the population, Muslim population, by the way, of, of France is about 6 to 8%. However, the Muslim religion may only be a minority in France, but, of course, the Muslim Religion constitutes the world's second largest religious group. And there are 49 Muslim-majority countries. Uh, some of the other, other, other authors that, that joined in this protest, the six, uh, also mentioned the hypocrisy that, that, Amer- that American pen should, should make an award... Uh, and 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 to con- and condemn uh, the Islamic terror- terrorists and uh, and the destruction of of this magazine, when uh, uh, and by so doing, ignoring that that the American foreign policy does far worse and destroys cultures and destroys uh, the lives of people daily with bombings and 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 by, by waging war in Afghanistan and, and Iraq and so on. This has reminded me of the of what we call the moral equivalence argument during the Cold War, when people support wouldn't wouldn't criticise the Soviet Union. Some writers uh, would not criticise the Soviet Union because America was just as bad. So I think these writers are saying that American pen somehow stood in place of or represented American American culture, and and it was a hypocritical of of pen America to condemn Islamic terror terrorists when. In fact, American soldiers were doing far worse. I'm just going through here the the sorts of attacks. Um, again, the, uh, the, the 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 writers all stress that in fact the M- Muslims in in France are not well treated and that they are a small minority. But of course, as I, I introduced those those statistics, it's not a small religion by any means and and its uh, dangerous terrorist sections uh, are, and, and expressions of, of Islam are of course very powerful and increasingly powerful there were criticisms of the quality of the work which seems to me irrelevant to a degree well irre- irrelevant um, 
whether their cartoons uh, could be called hate speech and whether we should uh, even consider re uh, the, the banning of hate speech is, of course, a discussion that's going on in Australia uh, at present with racial vilification laws. There's my own, having known authors all my life, writers all my life, as many, some of you may uh, are authors, some of you are authors, and, we've, and some of you are readers and have known authors all your life. There's, there's also an element of what I, I feel is, perver is, is writer perversity in the six writers who's, who didn't want to be signing the petition. <laughs> there are always writers who won't sign the petition because of the wording <laughs> or because it has a type, it has a grammatical error in it or because of, of some stra and again because of some political um, uh, uh, subtext which the, they detect in it uh, and, and they express their uh, superior, superior insights into the nature of the world by withholding what should be uh, in I would argue in this case a very straightforward honouring of of, a, of a, a courageous, if sometimes stupid, magazine, uh, and the right to do for to exist in that great tradition, to be as irreverent as it wants to be, uh, uh, should be, uh, uh, and the, and the fact that they gave their lives for this uh, should be honoured by Penn or by all writers everywhere. Um, so I'm pretty much finishing up here. The, um, I just wanted to quote another uh, interesting footnote. Um, this is um, um, by uh, this happened um, uh, an academic, Timothy Garton Ash, who has a, uh, a freedom t uh, a think tank in freedom in, at, at Cambridge University. And I just wanted to read out what T Timothy Garton Ash has to say and what he did. He points out that that uh, the um, Italian mafia also uses this, and and many other and some governments. Uh, the execution of journalists and writers is going on uh, throughout the world, and and the, the mafia use it. Uh, drug cartels in Mexico use it. Uh, journalists who try to expose corruption and and uh, and expose some of the horrors of, of of the drug cartels have been murdered. Uh, Garton Nash, uh, Timothy Garton Nash says, we must be concerned about the underlying religious and political ideology. But what changes everything is the use of violence to impose your taboos. If extreme Islamic views were advanced by entirely peaceful means, there would still be an issue, but it would not be this issue. If Buddhists, nationalists, or, or the mafia kill people or credibly threaten to kill them, simply to stop the expression of, of certain views or tastes, that is, the assassin's veto. Working out how to defeat the assassin's veto is one of the great challenges of our time. Among the many questions that arise is whether or not to republish images at which fanatics have chosen to take such violent offence 
that they murder those who have made these and republished these. Was there an editor in the West who did not agonise over the republication question in the hours and days after the question? That was whether they should republish the cover, say, of the of the, the some of the covers. The New York Times reported that its executive editor, spent uh, that's Dean uh, Baquette, spent half half my day, he said, doing so, and changed his mind twice. The Guardian in London, in an intense debate, an intense debate rolled through all Thursday, in the week that followed the record of of who did not, who did and who did not publish covers, uh, the 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 covers that inflamed the terrorists uh, became a major news story in in itself. Uh, Timothy Gartnash goes on to say, I became closely involved in this debate because on the morning of the attack. I wrote uh, an appeal for a week of solidarity in which broad range of European newspapers and broadcasters and bloggers and, and American newspapers and bloggers would republish carefully selected cartoon covers from Ch Charlie Hebdo, my, my no, no, by no means just those of Muhammad, with a, with a commentary explaining why they were doing it. And I suggested that readers and viewers should be warned in advance the cartoons would be shown, but the images should not be pixelated or redacted. He, Ash says, I gave two main reasons for this. To show that violent intimidation of free expression would not work and to enable readers to make up their own minds. The criterion of newsworthiness was clearly met. There was an overwhelming public interest in interest in readers, viewers and internet users having the relevant information. And the only way you can read a pro reach a proper judgment on the very particular no-hold-bars French genre of caricature practiced by Charlie Hebdo is to look at a representative sample of those cartoons. Ash says, my appeal was published in ten papers uh, and discussed in many others. And he, there's an article in the New York Review uh, of um, books uh, which goes on to analyse the, the responses of the various magazines. Um, the gala, the gala, the the event when the awards were made uh, was at the Museum of Modern Art in New York and had to be heavily surround was surrounded by heavily armed uh, and uh, um, um, a police. Um, there was a massive security presence because of uh, because of the nature of the awards. Uh, Jessie Cornbluth, uh, a journalist with the London Observer, wrote this as she left the awards ceremony, and she says, "Passing men from the anti-terrorist unit, men with dogs, men in thick vests, I paused to thank them, and so so did other authors. And as I walked home on a peaceful night under a big moon." I had what felt like clarity. The issue it, it the issue it wasn't complicated. The award was for courage, not content. The freedom to write is absolute. And then I wondered what it will come to mean to say, as I did, I'm with Charlie. The arts now face a world, and now I am speaking. The arts now face a world which, where there will be, as Salman Rushdie has said, the need. Uh, uh, experience the need to be protected by armed police 
fairly constantly and in different places all the time. There have already been magaz other magazine uh, offices burned down in, in Europe um, for publishing the cartoons from Charlie Hebdo. And the paradox of our times is that the arts now face a world where uh, we will have to be protected by armed police fairly constantly and in all sorts of gatherings, such as this one. Um, it's a strange reversal from the time when the arts was persecuted and arrested and the police were seen as the enemy and jailed by the authorities and censored. Uh, we are now under the protection of the law and, under, and will need the protection of ASIO. Uh, writers and the arts and journalists are now on the front line of terrorism as much as if they were in Baghdad or in Afghanistan. Thank you. Well, thank you, thank you very much for that uh, uh, most uh, stimulating and apposite set of remarks, Frank. They were, they were uh, I'm sure, well received and uh, and well understood. Uh, we are living in a different time. Uh, I'm afraid we've run out of uh, time for questions, but uh, there is a book signing. Uh, the books are available downstairs on a 10% discount, and I'm sure the author will answer or at least respond or attempt to respond to some of your provocations, challenges and questions when you take your book to him to sign. How does that sound? Is that all right? Yes, I do apologise for going over time, but I think that the issue demanded it. Has to be said.